Chapter 8, The Holiness of God Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. Revelation 15.4 He only is independently, infinitely, immutably holy. In Scripture, he is frequently styled the Holy One. He is so because the sum of all moral excellency is found in him. He is absolute purity, unsullied even by the shadow of sin. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, 5 Holiness is the very excellency of the divine nature. The great God is glorious in holiness. Exodus 15:11. Therefore do we read, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Habakkuk 1:13. As God's power is the opposite of the native weakness of the creature, as his wisdom is in complete contrast from the least defect of understanding or folly, so his holiness is the very antithesis of all moral blemish or defilement. Of old God appointed singers in Israel that they should praise the beauty of holiness. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 21. Power is God's hand or arm, omniscience his eye, mercy his bowels, eternity his duration, but holiness is his beauty. That was a quote from Stephen Charnock. It is this supremely which renders him lovely to those who are delivered from sin's dominion. Again, quoting Steve Charnock. Quote, a chief emphasis is placed upon this perfection of God. God is oftener styled holy than almighty and set forth by this part of his dignity more than by any other. This is more fixed on as an epitaph to his name than any other. You never find it express his mighty name or his wise name, but his great name or most of all his holy name. This is the greatest title of honor. In this latter doth the majesty and venerableness of his name appear. This perfection is none other is solemnly celebrated before the throne of heaven, the seraphim crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6.3. God himself singles out this perfection. Once have I sworn by my holiness, Psalm 89, verse 35. God swears by his holiness because that is a fuller expression of himself than anything else. Therefore are we exhorted, sing unto the Lord, all ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness, Psalm 30, verse 4. This may be said to be a transcendental, transcendental attribute that, as it were, runs through the rest and casts luster upon them. It is an attribute of attributes. John Howey, 1670. Thus we read of the beauty of the Lord, Psalm 27, verse 4, which is none other than the beauty of holiness, Psalm 110, verse 3. Again, quoting Stephen Charnock, quote, as it seems to challenge an excellency above all his other perfections, so it is the glory of all the rest, as it is the glory of the Godhead, so it is the glory of every perfection in the Godhead. As his power is the strength of them, so his holiness is the beauty of them. 
As all would be weak without almightiness to back them, so all would be uncomely without holiness to adorn them. Should this be sullied, all the rest would lose their honor. As at the same instant the sun should lose its light, it would lose its heat, its strength, its generative and quickening virtue. As sincerity is the luster of every grace in a Christian, so is purity the splendor of every attribute in the Godhead. His justice is a holy justice, his wisdom a holy wisdom, his arm of power a holy arm. Psalm 98, verse 1. His truth or promise, a holy promise. Psalm 105, verse 42. His name, which signifies all his attributes in conjunction, is holy. Psalm 103.1. End quote. God's holiness is manifested in his works. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Psalm 145, verse 17. Nothing but that which is excellent can proceed from him. Holiness is the rule of all his actions. At the beginning he pronounced all that he made very good, Genesis 1.31, which he could not have done had there been anything imperfect or unholy in them. Man was made upright, Ecclesiastes 7.29, in the image and likeness of his Creator. The angels that fell were created holy, for we are told that they kept not their first habitation, Jude 6. Of Satan it is written, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee, Ezekiel 28, verse 15. God's holiness is manifested in his law. That law forbids sin in all of its modifications in its most refined as well as its grossest forms, the intent of the mind as well as the pollution of the body, the secret desire as well as the overt act. Therefore do we read, The law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just and good. Romans 7.12 Yes, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Psalm 19, verses 8 and 9. God's holiness is manifested at the cross. Wondrously and yet most solemnly does the atonement display God's infinite holiness and abhorrence of sin. How hateful must sin be to God for him to punish it to its utmost deserts when it was imputed to his Son. Quoting Stephen Charnock, quote, Not all the vials of judgment that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, nor the irreversible sentence pronounced against the rebellious demons, nor the groans of the damned creatures give such a dem demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his Son. Never did divine holiness appear more beautiful and lovely than at that time our Savior's countenance was most marred in the midst of his dying groans. This he himself acknowledges in Psalm 22, when God had turned his smiling face from him and thrust his sharp knife into his heart, which forced that terrible cry from him, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He adores this perfection. Thou art holy. Verse 3. End quote. 
Because God is holy, he hates all sin. He loves everything which is in conformity to his law and loathes everything which is contrary to it. His word plainly declares declares the froward is an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 3.32. And again, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 15, verse 26. It follows, therefore, that he must necessarily punish sin. Sin can no more exist without demanding his punishment than without requiring his hatred of it. God has often forgiven sinners, but he never forgives sin, and the sinner is only forgiven on the ground of another having borne his punishment. For without shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 Therefore we are told, The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Nahum verse 1 verse 2 for one sin, God banished our first parents from Eden. For one sin, all the posterity of Canaan, a son of Ham, fell under a curse which remains over them to this day. Genesis 9.21 For one sin, Moses was excluded from Canaan. Elisha's servants, smitten with leprosy. Ananias and Sapphira cut off out of the land of the living. Herein we find proof for the divine inspiration of the scriptures. The unregenerate do not really believe in the holiness of God. Their conception of his character is altogether one-sided. They fondly hope that he, his mercy will override everything else. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether as thyself, Psalm 50, verse 21, is God's charge against them. They think only that a God, little g, patterned after their own evil hearts, hence their continuance in a course of mad folly. Such is the holiness ascribed to the divine nature and character in the scriptures that it clearly demonstrates their superhuman origin. The character attributed to the gods, little g, of the ancient and of modern heathendom is the very reverse of that immaculate, purity which pertains to the true God, an ineffably holy God who has the utmost abhorrence of all sin, was never invented by any of man's fallen descendants. The fact is that nothing makes more manifest the terrible depravity of man's heart and his enmity against the living God than to have set before him one who is infinitely and immutably holy. His own idea of sin is practically limited to what the world calls crime. Anything short of that man palliates as defects, mistakes, infirmities, etc. And even where sin is owned at all, excuses and extenuations are made for it. The God, little g, of the vast majority of professing Christians Love is looked upon very much like an indulgent old man who himself has no relish for folly, but leniently winks at the indiscretions of youth. But the word says, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity, Psalm 5, verse 5. And again, God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7, verse 11. But men refuse to believe in this God and gnash their teeth when his hatred of sin is faithfully pressed upon their attention. No, sinful man was no more likely to devise a holy God than to create a lake of fire 
in which he will be tormented forever and ever. Because God is holy, acceptance with him on the ground of creature doings is utterly impossible. A fallen creature could sooner create a world than produce that which would meet the approval of infinite purity. Can darkness dwell with light? Can the Immaculate One take pleasure in filthy rags? Isaiah 64, verse 6. The best that sinful man brings forth is defiled. A corrupt tree cannot bear good fruit. God would deny himself, vilify his perfections, were he to account as righteous and holy that which is not so in itself, and nothing is so which has the least stain upon it contrary to the nature of God. But blessed be his name, that which his holiness demanded his grace has provided in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every poor sinner who has fled to him for refuge stands accepted in the Beloved. Ephesians 1.6 Hallelujah! Because God is holy, the utmost reverence becomes our, becomes our approaches unto him. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all about him. Psalm 89, verse 7. Then exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Psalm 99, verse 5. Yes, at his footstool, in the lowest posture of humility, prostrate before him. When Moses would approach unto the burning bush, God said, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. Exodus 3, 5. He is to be served with fear. Psalm 2, verse 11. Of Israel his demand was, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. Leviticus 10.3 The more our hearts are awed by his ineffable holiness, the more acceptable will be our approaches unto him. Because God is holy, we should desire to be conformed to him. His command is, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1.16 We are not bidden to be omnipotent or omniscient as God is, but we are to be holy and that in all manner of deportment. 1 Peter 1.15 Quoting Stephen Charnock, This is the prime way of honoring God. We do not so glorify God by elevated admirations or eloquent expressions or pompous services of him as when we aspire to a conversing with him with unstained spirits and live to him in living like him, end quote. Then as God alone is the source and fount of holiness, let us earnestly seek holiness from him. Let our daily prayer be that he may sanctify us wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and our whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Chapter 9 The Power of God We cannot have a right conception of God unless we think of Him as all-powerful, as well as all-wise, he who cannot do what he will and perform all his pleasure cannot be God. As God hath a will to resolve what he deems good, so hath he power to execute his will. Quoting Stephen Charnock, quote, 
The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would be the eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity, his promises an empty sound, his threatenings a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature." End quote. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Psalm 62, verse 11. God hath spoken once. Nothing more is necessary. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but his word abideth forever. God hath spoken once. How befitting his divine majesty. We poor mortals may speak often and yet fail to be heard. He speaks but once, and the thunder of his power is heard on a thousand hills. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomforted them. Then the channels of water were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils. Psalm 18, verses 13 to 15. God hath spoken once. Behold his unchanging authority. For who in the heavens can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? Psalm 89, verse 6. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doth doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him what doest thou daniel 4:35 this was openly displayed when god became incarnate and tabernacled among men to the leper he said i will be thou clean and immediately excuse me i will be thou clean and immediately his leprosy was cleaned Matthew 8, verse 3. To one who had lain in the grave four days, he cried, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead came forth. The stormy wind and the angry wave were hushed at a single word from him. A legion of demons could not resist his authoritative command. Power belongeth unto God and to him alone. Not a creature in the entire universe has an atom of power save what God delegates. But God's power is not acquired, nor does it depend upon any recognition by any other authority. It belongs to him inherently. Quoting C.H. Spurgeon, quote, God's power is like himself, self-existent, self-sustained, the mightiest of men cannot add so much as a shadow of increased power to the omnipotent one. He sits on no, no buttress throne and leans on no assisting arm. His court is not maintained by his courtiers, nor does it borrow its splendor from his creatures. He is himself the great central source and originator of all power." End quote. 
not only does all creature bear witness, excuse me, not only does all creation bear witness to the great power of God, but also to his entire independency of all created things. Listen to his own challenge. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding, who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who will laid the cornerstone thereof? Job 38, verses 4 to 6. How completely is the pride of man laid in the dust? Quoting Stephen Charnock, quote, Power is also used as a name of God, the Son of Man sitting in the right hand of power, Mark 14.62. That is, at the right hand of God, God and power are so inseparable that they are reciprocated. As his essence is immense, not to be confined in place, as it is eternal, not to be measured in time, so it is almighty, not to be limited in regard of action, end quote. Lo, these are parts of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job 26.14 Who is able to count all the monuments of his power? Even that which is displayed of his might in the visible creation is utterly beyond our powers of comprehension. Still less are we able to conceive of omnipotence itself. This there is infinitely more power lodged in the nature of God than is expressed in all his works. Part of his ways we behold in creation, providence, redemption, but only a little part of his might is seen in them. Remarkably is this brought out in Habakkuk 3 verse 4, and there was the hiding of his power. It is scarcely possible to imagine anything more grandi-eloquent than the imagery of this whole chapter, yet nothing in, its, nothing in it surpasses the nobility of this statement. The prophet in vision beheld the mighty God scattering the hills and overturning the mountains, which one would think afforded an amazing demonstration of his power nay says our verse that it is rather the hiding than the displaying of his power what is meant this so inconceivable so immense so uncontrollable is the power of deity that the fearful convulsions which he works in nature conceal more than they reveal of his infinite power and might it is very beautiful to link together the following passages he walketh upon the ways of the sea, Job 9.8, which expresses God's uncontrollable power. He walketh in the circuit of heaven, Job 22.14, which tells of the immensity of his presence. He walketh upon the wings of the wind, Psalm 104.3, which signifies the amazing swiftness of his operations. This last expression is very remarkable. It is not that he flieth or runneth, but that he walketh, and that on the very wings of the wind, on the most impetuous of elements, tossed into utmost rage and sweeping along with almost inconceivable rapidity, yet they are under his feet, beneath his perfect control. 
Let us now consider God's power in creation. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. The north and the south thou hast created them. Psalm 89, verses 11 and 12. Before man can work, he must have both tools and materials. But God began with nothing, and by his word alone, out of nothing, made all things. The intellect cannot grasp it. God spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Psalm 33, verse 9. Primeval matter heard his voice. God said, Let there be, and it was so. Genesis 1. Well may we exclaim, Thou hast a mighty arm, strong is thy hand, high is thy right hand. Psalm 89, verse 13. Quoting James Hervey. 1789, quote, Who that looks upward to the midnight sky and with an eye of reasoning, reason beholds its rolling wonders, who can forbear inquiring of what were the, their mighty orbs formed? Amazing to relate, they were produced without materials. They sprung from emptiness itself. The stately fabric of universal nature emerged out of nothing. What instruments were used by the supreme architect to fashion the parts with such exquisite niceness and give so beautiful a polish to the whole? How was it all connected into one finely proportioned and nobly finished structure a bare fiat accomplished all. Let them be, said God. He added no more, and at once the marvelous edifice arose, adorned with every beauty, displaying innumerable perfections, and declaring amidst enraptured seraph its great creator's praise. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Psalm 33, verse 6. End quote. Consider God's power in preservation. No creature has power to preserve itself. Can the rush grow up without mire? Can the flag grow up without water? Job 8.11 Both man and beast would perish if there were not herbs for food, and herbs would wither and die if the earth were not refreshed with fruitful showers. Therefore is God called the preserver of man and beast. Psalm 36, verse 6. He upholdeth all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1, 3. What a marvel of divine power is the prenatal life of every human being, that an infant can live at all and for so many months in such cramped and filthy quarters and that without breathing is unaccountable without the power of God. Truly he holdeth our soul in life. Psalm 66, verse 9. The preservation of the earth from the violence of the sea is another plain instance of God's might. How is it that raging elements kept pent within the, those limits that wherein he first lodged it, continuing its channel without overflowing the earth and dashing in pieces the lower part of the creation? The natural situation of the water is to be above the earth because it is lighter and to be immediately under the air because it is heavier. Who restrains the natural quality of it? Certainly man does not and cannot. It is the fiat of its creator which alone bridles it. 
Hitherto thou shalt come, but no further, and here shall thy proud ways be stayed. Job 38.11 What a standing monument of the power of God is the preservation of the world. Consider God's power and government. Take his restraining of the malice of Satan. The devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8 He is filled with hatred against God and with fiendishness, fiendish enmity against men, particularly the saints. He that envied Adam in paradise envies us the pleasure of enjoying any of God's blessings. Could he have his will? He would treat us all the same way he treated Job. He would send fire from heaven on the fruits of the earth, destroy the cattle, cause a wind to overthrow our house, and cover our bodies with boils. But, little as men may realize it, God bridles him to a large extent, prevents him from carrying out his evil designs, and confines him within his ordinations. So, too... God restrains the natural corruption of men. He suffers sufficient outbreakings of sin to show what fearful havoc has been wrought by man's apostasy from his Maker. But who can conceive the frightful length to which men would go were God to remove his curbing hand? Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Romans 3:14 and 15. This is the nature of every descendant of Adam. Then what unbridled licentiousness and headstrong folly would triumph in the world if the power of God did not interpose to lock down the floodgates of it? See Psalm 93, verses 3 and 4. Consider God's power in judgment. When he smites, none can resist him. See Ezekiel 22:14. How terribly this was exemplified at the flood. God opened the windows of heaven and broke up the great fountains of the deep and, accepting those in the ark, the entire human race, helpless before the storm of his wrath, was swept away. A shower of fire and brimstone from heaven and the cities of the plain were exterminated. Pharaoh and all his hosts were impotent when God blew upon them at the Red Sea. What a terrific word is that in Romans 9.22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? God is going to display his mighty power upon the reprobate, not merely by incarcerating them in Gehenna, but by supernaturally preserving their bodies as well as souls amidst the eternal burnings of the lake of fire. May well all tremble before such a God. To treat with impudence one who can crush us more easily than we can uh, a moth is a suicidal policy. To openly defy him who is clothed with omnipotence, who can rend us in pieces or cast us into hell any moment he pleases, is the very height of insanity. To put it on its lowest ground... It is but the part of wisdom to heed his command. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Psalm 2.12 Well may the enlightened soul adore such a God. The wondrous and infinite perfections of such a being call for fervent worship. 
if men of might and renown claim the admiration of the world, how much more should the power of the Almighty fill us with wonderment and homage? Who is like unto thee, O Lord, amongst the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Exodus 15.11 Well may the saint trust such a God. He is worthy of implicit confidence. Nothing is too hard for him. If God were stinted in might and had a limit to his strength, we might well despair. But seeing that he is clothed with omnipotence, no prayer is too hard for him to answer, no need too great for him to supply, no passion too strong for him to subdue, no temptation too powerful for him to deliver, no misery too deep for him to relieve. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27, verse 1. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ, excuse me, by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Chapter 10, The Faithfulness of God. Unfaithfulness is one of the most outstanding sins of these evil days. In the business world, a man's word is, with exceeding rare exceptions, no longer his bond. In the social world, marital infidelity abounds on every hand, the sacred bonds of wedlock being broken with as little regard as the discarding of an old garment. In the ecclesiastical realm, thousands who have solemnly covenanted to preach the truth make no scruple to attack and deny it, nor can reader or writer claim complete immunity from this fearful sin. In how many ways have we been unfaithful to Christ and to the light and privileges which God has entrusted to us? How refreshing, then, how unspeakably blessed to lift our eyes above this scene of ruin and behold one who is faithful, faithful in all things, faithful at all times. Know, therefore, that the Lord God, thy God, he is God, the faithful God, Deuteronomy 7.9. This quality is essential to his being. Without it, he would not be God. For God to be unfaithful would be to act contrary to his nature, which were impossible. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 Faithfulness is one of the glorious perfections of his being. He is, as it were, clothed with, with it. O Lord God of hosts, who is the strong, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee, Psalm 89, verse 8. So too, when God became incarnate, it was said, Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins, Isaiah 11, verse 5. What a word is that in Psalm 36, verse 5. Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness unto the clouds. Far above all finite comprehension is the unchanging faithfulness of God. Everything about God is great, vast, incomparable. He never forgets, never fails, never falters, never forfeits his word. 
to every declaration of promise or prophecy, the Lord has exactly adhered every engagement of covenant or threatening he will make good. For God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Numbers 23, verse 19. Therefore does the believer exclaim, His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Lamentations 3:22 and 23. Scripture abounds in illustrations of God's faithfulness. More than 4,000 years ago, he said, while the earth remaineth seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Genesis 8, verse 22. Every year that, that comes furnishes a fresh witness to God's fulfillment of this promise. In Genesis 15, we find that Jehovah declared unto Abraham, Thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and it shall serve them. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. Verses 13 to 16. Centuries ran their weary course. Abraham's descendants groaned amid their brick kilns of Egypt. Had God forgotten his promise? No, indeed. Read Exodus 12:41. And it came to pass at the end of the four hundred and thirty years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Through Isaiah the Lord declared, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. 7.14 Again, centuries passed, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman. Galatians 4, 4. God is true. His word of promise is sure. In all his relations with his people, God is faithful. He may be safely relied upon. No one ever yet really trusted him in vain. We find this precious truth expressed almost everywhere in the scriptures, for his people need to know that faithfulness is an essential part of the divine character. This is the basis of our confidence in him. But it is one thing to accept the faithfulness of God as a divine truth. It is quite another to act upon it. God has given us many exceeding great and precious promises, but are we really counting on his fulfillment of them? Are we actually expecting him to do for us all that he has said? Are we resting with implicit assurance on these words? He is faithful that promised. Hebrews 10.23 There are seasons in the lives of all when it is not easy, no, not even for Christians, to believe that God is faithful. Our faith is sorely tried, our eyes be dimmed with tears, and we can no longer trace the outworkings of His love. Our ears are distracted with the noises of the world, harassed by the atheistic whisperings of Satan, and we can no longer hear the sweet accents of his still, small voice. Cherished plans have been thwarted. Friends on whom we relied have failed us. A professed brother or sister in Christ has betrayed us. We are staggered. We sought to be faithful to God, and now a dark cloud hides him from us. 
We find it difficult, yea, impossible, for carnal reason to harmonize his frowning providence with his gracious promises. Ah, faltering souls, severely tried fellow pilgrims, seek grace to heed, Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Yet let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. When you are tempted to doubt the faithfulness of God, cry out, Get thee hence, Satan. Though you cannot now harmonize God's mysterious dealings with the avows of his love, wait on him for more light. In his own good time he will make it plain to you. What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. John 13:7. The sequel will yet demonstrate that God has neither forsaken nor deceived his child, and therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all that they that wait on him, or wait for him. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Thy, testimony, thy testimonies which thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. Psalm 119, verse 138. God has not only told us the best, but he has not withheld the worst. He has faithfully described the ruin which the fall has affected. He has faithfully diagnosed the terrible state which sin has produced. He has faithfully made known his inveterate hatred of evil and that he must punish the same. He has faithfully warned us that he is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12:29. Not only does his word abound in illustrations of his fidelity in fulfilling his promises, but it also records numerous examples of his faithfulness in making good his threatenings. Every stage of Israel's history exemplifies that solemn fact. So it was with individuals. Pharaoh, Korah, Achan, and a host of others are so many proofs and thus it will be for you, my reader, unless you have fled or do flee to Christ for refuge, the everlasting burnings of the lake of fire will be your sure and certain portion. God is faithful. God is faithful in preserving his people. God is faithful by whom you are called unto the fellowship of his Son. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9. In the previous verse, promise was made that God would confirm Firm unto the end his own people. The apostles' confidence in the absolute security of believers was founded not on the strength of their resolutions or ability to persevere, but on the veracity of him that cannot lie. Since God has promised to his Son a certain people for his inheritance, to deliver them from sin and condemnation, and to make them participants of eternal life and glory, it is certain that he will not allow any of them to perish. God is faithful in disciplining his people. He is faithful in what he withholds no less than in what he gives. He is faithful in sending sorrow as well as in giving joy. The faithfulness of God is a truth to be confessed by us not only when we are at ease, but also when we are smarting under the sharpest rebuke. Nor must this confession be merely of our mouths, but of our hearts, too. 
When God smites us with the rod of chastisement, it is faithfulness which wields it. To acknowledge this means that we humble ourselves before him, own that we fully deserve his correction, and instead of murmuring, thank him for it. God never afflicts without a reason. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, 1 Corinthians 11.30, says Paul, illustrating this principle. When his rod falls upon us, let us say with Daniel, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces. Daniel 9, verse 7. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. Psalm 119.75 Trouble and affliction are not only consistent with God's love pledged in the everlasting covenant, but they are parts of the administration of the same. God is not only faithful with standing afflictions, but faithful in sending them. Then will I visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. My loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Psalm 89, verses 32 and 33. Chastening is not only reconcilable with God's loving kindness, but it is the effect and expression of it. It would much quiet the minds of God's people if they would remember that his covenant binds him to lay on them seasonable correction. Afflictions are necessary for us. In their affliction, they will seek me early, Hosea 5.15. God is faithful in glorifying his people. Faithful is he which calleth you, which will also, which who also will do, 1 Thessalonians 5.24. The immediate reference here is to the saints being preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God deals with us not on the ground of our merits, for we have none, but for his own great namesake. God is constant to himself and to his own purpose of grace, whom he called, them he also glorified, Romans 8.30. God gives a full demonstration of the constancy of his everlasting goodness towards his elect by effectually calling them out of darkness into his marvelous light, and this should fully assure them of the certain continuance of it. The foundation of God standeth sure, 2 Timothy 2.19. Paul was resting on the faithfulness of God when he said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day, 2 Timothy 1.12.